Hello and welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. Later you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. I hope that you're enjoying our study on difficult questions. Tonight we're talking about election. We'll spend a couple of weeks talking about election. Going to try to bring some practical aspects, especially because sometimes when it comes to our government, we may have uh, certain opinions about how does God work in government. And that's also covered in the area of election. However, tonight we're going to see how it started, some of the different viewpoints and aspects of that. In Romans chapter 9, let me begin reading in verse 10 through verse 18. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. We're going to stop right there. We're going to come back to that. Lord willing, next week we'll spend a little more time in this as well. These are difficult passages because sometimes it gives us the idea that God has predestined certain people, some that he has loved and some that he has hated, and he has predestined them to do certain things. We're going to examine that in the light of Scripture but let's, if we might, go to our PowerPoint presentation and look at some of these. Remember, we're talking about the area of soteriology. That is the study of salvation. We've talked about some general aspects. We're going to be talking about various positions, various aspects of that. Did I not get plugged in by chance? And let me see, I, I can probably go back if need be. We good? Okay. So in the area of soteriology, the study of salvation, we are talking about, and we've talked about some general aspects of salvation. We've talked about salvation in the Old Testament and what happened, where did those saints go when they died? What happened to them? We've also now talking tonight about election, and maybe Lord willing next week we'll be following up on that. We're going to talk about security of the believer. Can our position in Christ be lost or turned down? Can you walk away? We're going to see that question of our saints only in 
the Lord's New Testament churches. Is baptism essential for salvation? What about also the baptism for the dead? These are sometimes difficult verses, and maybe you have other verses that you want us to try to break down, that you're interested in, and you want their clear, concise meanings. God willing, we'll spend some time and look at those and try to give you those clear meanings. We want you to be able to answer any skeptic, anyone who is a scoffer or has a different perspective. We want you to be prepared with the Word of God so that you can give an answer and you don't have to be afraid in those areas. So your questions are encouraged and that if we can figure it out and work on all of that, that you could ask questions directly on Facebook or that you could email and if you email us, then the following week we'll try to answer those questions or deal with that particular passage. All right, I've said all of this in the last couple of weeks, but I want you to be encouraged to ask questions if you have some. The Bible does teach election. We've just read something on that. We've just read there in Romans 9, where we see that that for the purpose of God's election, that Isaac bore both Jacob and Esau. One was chosen, the other was not. The Bible does teach election, teaches it in many, many different aspects. But we want a biblical understanding. We do not want men's opinions or interpretation regarding what election consists of. So, we see the example that God elected to enter into a covenant relationship with certain Old Testament patriarchs. And so it's important that we recognize that these are, this is a position that God has chosen so that we would understand His Word better. God elected that by Abraham, through Isaac, he would bring a nation into a covenant relationship, into a covenant agreement. That was God's electing, God's choosing. Today, the New Testament church is in a new covenant. Today, the Lord's churches stand in this covenant relationship. God has elected to use His churches to carry the gospel to the world. And so, the Bible does teach election. Are you one of the elect? If you have been born again, if you are a child of God, then the scripture says you are one of the elect. You have been elected. You are his child. You belong to the king. We're going to discuss that much more so that I want you to be clear. What does that entail? Who does that? How can, how can that happen? How can I become one of the elect? We're going to examine those things. I want you to understand that election has more to do with the sending of the message than the salvation of the individual. We might think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was born again while he was on the road to Damascus, and yet God had elected him as an apostle. Why? Why was it that God's purpose of election in choosing apostles? 
Why is it that God's purpose of election in choosing the method, it was that the gospel would go forward. So the election has really more to do, more than your standing or my standing with God. It has more to do with the sending of the message rather than the position of the individual. I'm going to show you that as we go through scripture, especially as we look at Romans 8, 9, and 10. So God chose Israel. They were a small, they were an insignificant people, starting with Abraham. He chose them to receive the word, to reveal God's word to the world, that the might of God and the power of God might be seen. Now a new covenant has been made with the Lord's churches that were also small, insignificant people, no one of great stature, no kings or anything like that. They were, remember what Paul said, that God had chosen the weak things, the small things. To complete the revelation of God's word and plan, he took fishermen, he took a tax collector, he took a Gentile like Luke, and he brought forth the word of God and the plan of God's elected plan was that the Lord, Lord's New Testament churches would spread the gospel, the good news of redemption to the entire world. That was God's elected plans. So that purpose was that whosoever will would believe, that whosoever would listen. We're going to talk about how is it that the power of God comes. All right. Jesus made it clear that a person was not elected to be saved because they were the offspring of Abraham. Likewise today, a person is not elected or chosen to salvation because of their heritage, because of their baptism, or any effort that they might apply. Salvation is completely by God's grace through faith to whomsoever will. Now, that might fly in the face of some people. They may not agree, but we're going to talk about this. We're going to see exactly why that is, that salvation is completely God's grace through faith to whomsoever will. Let's look at the doctrines of this church. You can find these doctrines on the website. The doctrine of election of salvation says that we believe that the depraved sinner is saved wholly by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and the requisites to regeneration are repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the Holy Spirit convicts sinners, regenerates, seals, secures, and indwells every believer. I believe this is what the faith that was once delivered to the saints, that's what the early church held to. So you may not realize that when you're reading the doctrinal statement, it's talking about the doctrine of election. Also in the area of eternal security, it's talking about the doctrine of election. Because we believe that all who trust Jesus for Christ for salvation are eternally secure in him and shall not perish. And of course, there are many of those scriptures. They're kind of hard to read. I've put them in small print so that uh, you might get these, but they are on the website 
under what we believe. So you can go to LandmarkStockton.com, look up our doctrinal statement, and uh, all of that, all of those verses are there. Let's define some terms. Though Christians might agree that salvation is by grace alone, sometimes they disagree when it comes to specifically defining the implications of this grace. The question as to the origin of salvation, specifically as it relates to election and calling, is among our Baptist brethren one of the most controversial questions today. And so what we see in this study, we're going to examine the men that originated some of these thoughts, the doctrines, as well as the theology that accompanies those teachings. We're going to then also look, Lord willing, next week at some very practical aspects, maybe how we've allowed certain of these things to creep into our own lives. So we begin to see how a wrong idea about election can cause a person to be very less evangelistic. I have known some of our churches that just believed God was going to bring people in the doors, that God was going to move and they had to come. And they have forgotten the great commission that the Lord told us to go. The Lord told us to go into every corner of the world. But if we believe that God has predestined some people to salvation and others to damnation, then why should we go? Why should we spend money on missions? They're going to come to Christ anyway. You see, so sometimes having our wrong beliefs will damage our evangelistic witnessing efforts. So while all of our Baptist brethren recognize the sovereignty of God in salvation, that it is God, it's by grace, how and when God's sovereignty is exercised is really the basic area of contention. Sooner or later, the debate comes down and involves something known today in our world as Calvinism. Some people call it Reformed theology. Some may be uh, uh, the Presbyterian. All of that's the same. It's all Calvinism. So many attempt to pigeonhole Christians into either one of two schools of thought and those teachings. They are either Calvinism or Arminianism. To many, you are either a Calvinist or you're an Arminian. However, we do not fit into either specific category, although sometimes we'll say there's truth here, there's truth there. We are not Calvinist and we are not Arminian. We, uh, are, we hold to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And I'm going to say that over and over so that you know that there was something that was introduced later. And so we hold what the fathers, the apostles, the early church fathers taught, that salvation is free to all who will come, that God did not choose some to be saved and some to be lost, but that salvation is by grace alone, not of works, not of any acts of righteousness on our part, that God's foreknowledge is not causative because God foreknows if someone is going to be saved or lost, he did not cause them to be saved or lost. 
We're going to look at, see how that, how is it that God allows a person to use their own free will in that aspect? So now probably all of our Calvinistic listeners have probably shut off at this point and said, I don't want to hear any more of that. But it's important because some would say God's foreknowledge has caused a person to be saved or lost. That God did not sovereignly choose some to salvation and others to damnation because we're going to see that that goes against the very nature of God and who God is. And so in that, we see that all mankind is able to respond to God's invitation of salvation. Calvinism teaches that that is not so. That first a man must be regenerated before he can even hear and respond. So we're going to examine that. We see that all of mankind therefore is responsible for either accepting Jesus' free offer of salvation. What does each person do? Have they accepted or rejected? They are responsible. The Lord's churches are responsible for carrying the message of the gospel, the good news, into every corner of the globe. It is this church's responsibility to carry the gospel because anyone who hears, this is very, very important. It is the word of God that has the power to save. Arminian and Calvinists do not believe that. However, the scripture says over and over, it's by the power of the word, the power of the preaching word, the power of the word. You see, that separates us from either camp. The word of God, when it's preached, the Holy Spirit convicts and people accept and they're regenerated. So it's very, very important that it's the Word of God that's being preached, not some act that has been done called prevenient grace or uh, uh, election. I think that's an important thing because both groups believe that God has to do something upon a person before they will either accept. But we believe it's the power of the Word of God that has the power to save. That's why we give an invitation. That's why I think it's important to give an invitation every time the Word of God is preached, because we do not know the power of the Word of God and how His Holy Spirit may be working. So, Calvinism is seen in the acrostic tulip called uh, tulip. Those who hold to this doctrine express Calvinism in five points, and they apply certain interpretations of Scripture in light of those beliefs. So what they believe about the tulip is how they interpret the scripture. Arminists do as well. Let's look at those. T stands for total depravity. We're going to be examining total depravity tonight. And then we'll get into some of the others like unconditional election, limited atonement. Christ did not die for all they teach. He only died for those who were elect. That there is irresistible grace that you cannot resist the Holy Spirit when He convicts that He is drawing you. And then perseverance of the saints. Now we believe in total depravity. We believe in perseverance of the saints, but not quite the same as a Calvinist does. So we will see also Arminianism has five points. They, the disciples of Jacob Arminius 
came up with these five points of his theory. And then Calvin's disciples came up with the acrostic tulip in answer to this. So they've been fighting back and forth for many years. Here they are. Arminius teach that God from eternity past determined to save all who will believe in Jesus and to leave the incorrigible and unbelieving in sin and under wrath. They believe also that Christ died for and obtained redemption and forgiveness of sins for all, but these benefits are effective only for those who believe on Christ. Man cannot think, will, nor do anything that is truly good, and that included saving faith, but must be regenerated. We see also, number four, that God's grace is absolutely essential for salvation, but that it may be resisted. So you can see some areas that we're in agreement, some areas where we're not. Here's one that we might stand very strongly opposed to that those truly saved through faith in Christ are empowered by the Holy Spirit to resist sin. We believe that. But whether they could fall away from the faith must be more particularly determined out of the Holy Scripture before we ourselves can teach it with full persuasion of our minds. That's Arminianism and Calvinism. Some major points of contention. Romans chapter 9, where we read a few minutes ago, Major, major point of contention. That's why we're going to spend a little more time in Romans 9. Did or does God foreordain that some should act in a certain way in order to accomplish his plan? Pharaoh was given in as, as an example. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now, they would take that to say God caused Pharaoh, not his foreknowledge, but he caused him by hardening Pharaoh's heart to do what he did. He foreordained it. Calvinism teaches predestination of mankind. Before the foundation of the world, God knew when you would be born, and he knew whether or not he was going to save you or leave you to eternal damnation. Many Bible teachers today consider themselves three-point or four-point Calvinist. They are not in total agreement with Calvin's institutes. You can go online. You can see all of the many institute, Calvin's uh, institutes, and you can look at the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, and you can get all that online. It's very, re uh, very much ready, uh, available, readily available. That's what I'm trying to say. So truth is consistent as a whole. I want to say that again. Truth is consistent as a whole. We hold to the doctrine that was once delivered to the saints. Truth is consistent as a whole. Calvinism and Arminianism are systems of theology and as such are a unity. Follow me here. So one cannot choose part of a system and still be consistent with that system. You can't say, I'm a three-point Arminian, I'm a three-point Calvinist, I'm a four-point Calvinist, and be consistent to Calvinism or Arminianism. So to modify or reject a part is to create a new system. The faith that was once delivered to the faith does not need a new system. It did not need to be refined. 
Our forefathers have taught these things from the time of Christ. They received it of the Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, and it has served these over 2,000 years. The teachings of Calvinism really originated with a man by the name of Augustine. He was the Bishop of Hippo. Let's talk about Augustine. He was uh, the originator of this thought of predestination. Our Donatist forefathers, and we believe that we have a long line of our Baptist history, they declared Augustine to be a heretic. And they worded that very, very strongly and opposed him. They opposed what was happening in the, uh, what was beginning to be called the universal church. We're going to see why that is. Many Christian scholars today revere Augustine. They'll quote him in some of his different books, and they are available again online, uh, all of that's very much available to you. Uh, but Augustine was a Gnostic. He was a Manichaean before he said that he accepted Christ, born in the 4th century and did most of his work in the 5th century. He wrote and he read Latin, could not read Greek or Hebrew. He was the Manichaean, by the way. They were, that was a dualistic religion that brought in Christianity, Gnosticism, and some paganism. They believed by gaining certain knowledge, you were then enlightened and you would be saved. And so that salvation came through that special enlightened knowledge. Augustine's salvation was always in question. I say that because he said that he had a vision of a young girl that came and showed him a scroll and read to him. And it was portion of scripture and that he believed that scripture and that he accepted Christ. I remember another man in the United States that was given uh, golden plates in certain glasses. And yet some of those things that he said, I might agree with. Much of them I don't agree with. So let's look at Augustine and see that he is the originator these are his teachings. He is called the father of modern Catholicism. His teachings began the praying to Mary. You could go and you could ask Mary to ask Jesus. After all, she was the mother of Jesus. <laughs> he began the teaching of purgatory because his teaching of the universal church was that some were saved and some were lost. And those that were lost that were in the church they would go to purgatory, be burned for a little while, then they could enter in and, and receive complete remission of sins. Not biblical. <laughs> do, do I need to say that these are not biblical teachings? <laughs> okay. Predestination to heaven or hell. You, God, had decided before that you were either going to heaven or hell. This came from Augustine. He said there was no thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. That Revelation 19, you might as well pull it out of the Bible. Doesn't count. Revelation 20 doesn't count. All that the millennial reign does and the fulfillment of all of God's promises doesn't count. There was no thousand-year reign of Christ. He began and used the word the universal church. This is where universal church began. And he said that everybody who was saved was in the church. Some of them were saved and some were lost. He put 
people in both categories and put them in as members of this universal church body. He taught compulsory church attendance. You must attend church. Otherwise, you were subject to floggings. You were subject to other kinds of beatings or possibly imprisonment. He began the word that is used today for sacrament. It actually was a misreading from the Latin Vulgate. He took the word for mystery from the Latin and began the word sacrament. That's where we get our word sacrament today. Well, he also began to teach that you must do penance for salvation. In other words, it's not all of, sal it's not all of grace, but if you fall, then there's penance that you must do. That you must participate in what he called the sacraments. Salvation came through obtaining the sacraments. You got grace by doing that, by going to church. And so, yes, you were saved by grace through the sacraments. By the way, I have gotten all of this information from Philip Schaff, History of the Christian Church. I also used a book uh, called What Love Is This by Dave Hunt. Oh, you can't see that. That's all right. And Dave Hunt brings that out. And also Gibbon's Rise and Fall of the uh, Roman Empire. And so the, uh, all of those, that's where this information has come from. I didn't make this up. He began to teach that the cloistered monastic life was something that everyone should strive for. You ought to go live and be a part and live up in the mountains or wherever it was in a, in a monastery. He began killing the Donatist and any who deemed, were deemed schismatics, and that was according to Gibbon. He hated the Donatist, our Baptist forefathers. Look at what he says. He identified the Donatist as heretics. As I started, remember, the Donatist had already named him as a heretic, and they encouraged Christians to not listen or have anything to do with Augustine. He had them persecuted with criminals, misbelievers, poisoners, and pagans. This is what he writes. Why therefore should not the church use force in compelling her lost sons to return? The Lord himself said, go into the highways and the hedges to compel them to come in. Wherefore is the power which the church has received through the religious character and faith of kings, the instrument by which those who are found in the highways and hedges, that is in heresies and schisms, are compelled to come in and let them not find fault with being compelled. So you must go. Those were his words, not mine. Calvinists interpret total depravity in our tea of tulip. It means that any man in his natural state is incapable or unable to do anything to please God or merit uh, salvation. He is totally depraved of any urging to seek after God. There is none who do right. And they'll use that. They'll take that. There are none who seek after God. And often they use the idea of the raising of Lazarus from the grave is used as an illustration of that condition, that man is dead, that God raised Lazarus. He didn't call everyone out of the grave. He called Lazarus. Lazarus did not have any choice in the matter. He was dead. 
So they use that illustration. We might use the illustration of the parable of the, of the prodigal son who realizes his condition and goes back to the father. And so understanding that, I think we need to recognize that when you are dead in your sin and trespasses, you can still make free moral decisions. Lazarus had no decision to make as a dead man. Dead men cannot make moral choices or decisions. So total depravity means that man is in complete rebellion against God, and by his free will he cannot and will never make a decision for Christ. However, the Bible teaches that God is made in the image of God. And since God is a person, God is a personality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, man is made in that image. Man reflects the personhood of God, for we have mind, we have will, intellect, we have spirit, flesh. God made us in a, as a human personality, made up of intellect, emotion, will, and moral awareness. So because man's will is reflective of God's will, Man has the duty and the ability to make moral choices based on his understanding and motivations. So man is given the opportunity to make a moral choice for God. You have that opportunity. Being dead in your sins and trespasses does not mean that you cannot respond. It's reflected in repenting, turning, believing, receiving salvation. And a man that rejects is condemned if he rejects. So God in his integrity, the integrity of his nature, could not ask a man to do what he is incapable of doing, nor could he hold man responsible for all the choices, whether good or evil. Doesn't the scripture talk about that the works of a man are written? And of course, our works are that we accepted Christ, and he has been now our propitiation He's paid the price for our sins. The very love of God, the nature of God tells us that because God is love, he could not have made man anything else but to give man that opportunity to choose for himself. Remember in Romans 6, 23, it says the wages of sin is death. But what's the rest of that? But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So yes, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, but by accepting Christ as our Savior, we made alive. And so Calvinism teaches that man, because of his fallen condition, can never and will never do good. They teach that a person to accept Christ and be born again is an initial work of God that has to take place that God first must regenerate that person. That is nowhere found in the scripture. The Bible does not teach that, that there is something that must be done before you can accept Christ. They'll try to take some scriptures and make it and twist it into meaning that, but it's obviously not so. The Bible makes it clear how to be saved. Romans chapter 10. Romans 10 <laughs> it's so easy that even a child can say that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. He goes on and he explains, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And so I could go on and on. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Remember what we said earlier? It was the power of the word of God to save. So the Bible makes it clear. That's why even little children are able to call out and accept. And they know they want a savior. They want Jesus. There are illustrations of men in scripture who've made decisions against the purpose of God, such as Pharaoh. We talked about him. We talk about Esau in Romans 9. Esau sold his birthright. It wasn't important to him. For Jacob, that birthright was. What about Lot? Lot looked on the well-watered plains of Sodom, and he chose his own comfort. What about Balaam, that prophet who looked for the profitability of cursing Israel? But then there are some who've made difficult decisions and God honored them. What about Abraham? When God called him to go and find a city whose builder and maker was God, and he called him up out of Ur of the Chaldees, what did he do? He got up and immediately left. When God asked him to sacrifice his only son, the promised son, what did he do? He, about, he was about to give that sacrifice. What about Elijah? When all the rest of Israel was going after false gods, Elijah called them into uh, a contest. What about all of those in Hebrews 11? The list was way too long to put here. All of those people that believed God and had faith, Noah, all the way through. We could go through and list, but I'm getting, it's right there for you in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me tell you this in our closing down a little bit. Accountability follows responsibility. If you are responsible, you are accountable. You must be able then to answer, is a person able to respond? If God holds them responsible, he or she is able to respond. That is totally against the Calvinistic teaching of total depravity. And we've just talked about one of those. But I think we're going to be looking at practical aspects of how we might have been influenced by Calvinistic thoughts, even in our day and age. I've said we want to deal with Romans chapter 9. Because some might have said, well, look, it's so obvious that God chose uh, Jacob over Esau. God chose uh, to use Pharaoh in such a way. But the context, the context makes it clear. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, to whom are the fathers 
and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, and eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. You see, what God is talking about in Romans chapter 9, begins in chapter 8, Paul is talking about that God initially used Israel as the means for carrying the gospel, and they failed. They kept it within themselves. They went after other gods. And now he's replaced them with Gentiles. So you see, this is not speaking about individuals, but it's talking about new nations. It's talking about a covenant relationship. It's talking about something very much different. That's why Paul said, I wished I were accursed. And if you go on, that's what he says. He talks about that uh, God has prepared the vessels. Look at verse 24 of Romans 9. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people. There shall they be called sons of the living God. And it goes on and it speaks of that. So the context is not that God chose an individual to be saved and some to be hardened, but God has chosen a people to carry the gospel. The context then makes it very clear. That's what the Lord was speaking about. Well, I, I, I could really preach on some of those. I'm not going to. Next week, we're going to get into the election part two. <laughs> we're going to talk a little more about how some of those things are effective and how uh, we might have been infected in some areas with Calvinistic ideas and we see it played out in everyday life. So I want to bring this down to some practical applications. I want you to be assured, one of the blessings of being part of the Lord's New Testament church is that we have the heritage that came from the very first church at Jerusalem, those apostles, those early church fathers, that we have that lineage that we have the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It didn't need to be reformed. We did not have to uh, uh, leave or break off, protest the Catholic Church. We were never part of the Catholic Church. We are not Protestants. We are those of the early church. That's why we're not Calvinist. We're not Arminianist. Those came centuries later centuries later after in the fifth century these dogmas these doctrines this what i call doctrines of the devils because now you see it's led people into a false idea of salvation but if god is moving and working in your life if you don't know christ as lord and savior he offers today to you that you can be born again 
you can become one of the elect. You can become a, his child. You can be born again, born of the Father. If you are listening and you need to be part of one of the Lord's churches, maybe this church, just make that known. You need to be part of that faith that was once delivered to the saints and to this church. The responsibility is to go into all of the world and witness and tell people about Jesus Christ and lead them to Christ. To do otherwise means that we believe in Calvin that, well, they're just going to come. God somehow miraculously is going to work, and that is not biblical. We are told to go into all of the world, make disciples, to teach them then the all things. That's why I say over and over, week after week, our job is to reach people and teach people. That's the Great Commission. Let's just close out in prayer. I hope that this series is being a blessing to you, and I want you to ask those important questions. If I didn't answer your questions tonight, if you still have questions, let us know. We want to deal with those. We want you to be perfectly assured and clear. The Word of God is simple and clear. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.